BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer America. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Inflation's got its grip around our neck and it's not getting any better. That's true even on a good day like this where the Dow ultimately gained 194 points, the S&P advanced 0.95%, and the Nasdaq jumped 1.62% as the snapback from last week's brutal pummeling continues. I'm always pointing out that the major problems come down to supply chain disruptions, a labor shortage, the war in Ukraine, and the lockdowns in China. But I think the blame for inflation might go further than that. There's another reason we have all of these supply shortages. Our government doesn't have a productive relationship with big business. Like it or not, big business has the ability to rein in inflation, but they don't have any incentive to do so. There's no rapport, zero, with the White House for most execs in this country. Classic example, energy. Today, important executives from the oil industry met with Energy Secretary Granholm about curbing the high price of gasoline. We want that, right? It was an important meeting because even as President Biden has correctly blamed much of the increase on Vladimir Putin and his war of aggression in Ukraine, he seems to hold genuine scorn for the oil industry. He's been adamant they need to pump more and stop gouging the American people to the point where he accused ExxonMobil of making more money than God. Putting aside the possibly sacrilegious point of order that maybe Exxon really uh, had a better year than God, uh, that one comment kiboshed any chance that U.S. oil producers would lift a finger to get gas prices under control. It was completely gratuitous. The blowback I have heard from behind the scenes has shocked me. These oil folk actually thought they had a chance of, to work out a plan with Biden to lower prices. Why is that? Well, first, uh, as David Faber demonstrated with his unbelievably good documentary last night, Exxon at the Crossroads, even this company, long a climate change denier, is working very hard to reduce its carbon footprint, yet they're not getting any credit for it from the White House. While it's a good first step that Granholm sat down with these executives, the truth is President Biden seems more comfortable negotiating with the oil gangsters who run Saudi Arabia. This is a country he called a pariah state after its crown prince ordered the murder of a journalist who worked for an American news outlet. But Saudi Arabia can't really help here because we don't have a shortage of crude oil. We have a shortage of refining capacity. And without a friendly administration in the White House, the oil industry is very reluctant to spend fortunes building new refineries, which are very expensive and take forever to complete. 
Why take the risk when they're already printing money and this present quarter, yeah, maybe down the road, a refinery shutdown just purely on environmental grounds? Hey, they did it to almost completed pipelines. Right now, we desperately need more refining capacity to bring gasoline prices down. Yet, at the same time, you probably don't know this, but the giant chemical company, Lyondell Basel, has a colossal Houston refining facility that can refine 268,000 barrels per day. And do you know the firm's planning to close it by the end of next year? Why? It can't find a buyer. Well, that's because it needs to put in, any buyer needs to put in at least a billion dollars plus in capital expenditures to have it maintained. Also, this plant requires heavy crude to run. They used to get it from Venezuela. They were planning to pipe it down from Canada via the now-canceled Keystone Pipeline. Without that heavy oil from Canada, there's just not much reason to keep this refinery open. You need government intervention to make it run. I doubt Biden will allow a pipeline with Canada. But maybe he's willing to get friendly with the communist regime in Venezuela. Similarly, the president said he wants the oil companies to do more drilling on federal leases, but they're not inclined to do so without more pipeline capacity to bring that oil to market. And Biden's made it extremely difficult, more than any president, maybe in history, to cite these pipes. I speak to many of the people in this industry, and I can tell you that they've never felt like they've never been treated this badly with this level of contempt. Executives don't like investing in big projects when they feel like the government's out to get them. But we need a ton of infrastructure investment to bring down the price of the pump. The oil industry is not going to lower gas prices out of the goodness of their hearts. They have a fiduciary duty to make money for the shareholders, not to bail out the American consumer. I get why Biden doesn't want to buddy up to the oil industry as fossil fuels are very unpopular in the Democratic Party. And for good reason. Good historical reason. But if he wants to get reelected, he's going to have to suck it up. You can't speed from fossil to green. Look what happened in Germany when they tried it. They got hooked to Russian energy. And that is the reason why this war is occurring so easily. The Russians could win. Now, I don't think they will. I think there'll be a truce. But you know it's because the Germans are not helping the situation. Second example, we desperately need more semiconductors in this country. And to do that, we need to manufacture them here. Most of the world's semiconductor foundries are located in Taiwan or South Korea. A missile throw away from China, I might add. If we could build more chips ourselves, we could have lower prices and our tech would be more secure. That's why I was so excited about the CHIPS Act, which can put more than $50 billion towards new foundries in this country. Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, is willing to kickstart the process with a $20 billion investment in Ohio. Now, though, it looks like congressional intransigence could do this legislation. Oh, this would be a disaster for national defense, for American manufacturing, for all the people who've been employed by these foundries, could be, and certainly for the consumers. Yet it looks like it could die on the vine. If the administration really cared about these issues and Congress could work with them, then we might have a longer-term plan to hold down costs of everything, because everything needs semis. But we'd rather build bridges to nowhere because Washington is allergic to industrial policy. It's not just the lack of government cooperation with business, which I reiterate is the worst I've seen in my lifetime. I believe technology firms and their clients may be failing us, too. We have many businesses that are really good at firing people to make their quarters. But how about harnessing technology to keep inflation down when people can't be found to work, as is the case in this country right now? I don't want to blame the tech companies per se. For instance, we spent a lot of time with Jensen Wong. He's the brilliant CEO of NVIDIA, and he's developed technology that can take orders better than any human in 27 languages. It could be a savior of the restaurant industry, which is now desperately understaffed. How can these chains not be calling NVIDIA to figure out how to integrate this amazing technology? 
I give credit to ServiceNow and Salesforce.com, by the way, we have the latter on tonight, for what they've done to help companies deal with a lack of salespeople and data analysts. But I don't see many tech firms trumpeting software that can lend a hand here. I know that GM's cruise division, Alphabet's Waymo, and Tesla are pushing ahead with self-driving cars, which would theoretically help the labor shortage if they can ever make it happen. But state and local governments are fearful of self-driving accidents, even as we know empirically that there are way more accidents per mile by human drivers than there are by self-driving cars. GM just started a self-driving program in San Francisco. I salute Mary Barr for that. If the data is as good as I've seen, governments should be working to both support the safer machines and help subsidize even long-haul self-driving trucks, a major source of higher courses in the si- uh, cost of the system. Look, maybe it's as simple as business connecting with tech. McDonald's calling NVIDIA. Biden saying, OK, I'll sit down with you all, guys. I, I, I guess I have to. Someone in Congress who's powerful saying he can't, we just can't lose on this chipset. But at the bottom line here right now, at this point, I'd be more willing to bet on the odds of a truce in Ukraine after Russia gets the Donbass than CEOs breaking bread with Biden administration on just about anything. Spencer in California. Spencer. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah, Spencer. What's happening? I'm doing real well. So I'm wondering, with X-Share back and uh, summer vacation in full swing, do you see any summer loving for Uber? Uh, Down here, I'm not going to go against Uber. I mean, look, this is a really well-run company. And uh, they just have have driver shortages, uh, but they're going to deal with that. Look, I'd rather look. I think this stock is five points down and fifteen point up. That's the way I look at it. Uh, I, I just can't see it going down more than five. It could, but I just don't see that. Let's go to Alan in California. Alan, hi Jim. Alan from California, formerly from Cheltenham. Oh, get always out. We always fan. cross Cheltenham and everything. So, in everything, I personally beat them in everything. What's up? So my question is, <clears throat> since J.P. Morgan Chase has established itself, excuse me, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Do you think that Chase is going to be interested in the middle of the state, in particular Harrisburg? Too small. J.P. Morgan likes the big big markets. Now, I've got to tell you, there is a pecking order. My favorite is Wells Fargo. We just got the stress test. Wells is fine. Uh, I like Bank of America, too. Uh, J.P. Morgan's third. Uh, Jamie Dimon can always come on and tell me why that is the wrong pecking order. Let's go to Nass in Florida. Nass. Go ahead, Nas. You're up. It's Jim. Nas. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. It's Nas. Nas. This is my fault. I'm probably mispronouncing Nas's name. And I apologize. We're not getting it. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Uh, So anyway, we're going to wrap here. Uh, Nas, we'll get you back on sometime soon. Government cooperation with business is the worst I've seen in my entire lifetime. I'm talking about like Nixon... Eisenhower's pretty good. Carter. It's worse than Carter, for heaven's sake. Certainly worse than Obama. I'm not holding my breath that this will get better anytime soon. But it should. Oh, man, buddy, tonight we're about to enter earnings season. The estimates for this quarter and the rest of the year haven't come down enough yet before we get a bottom. That has to happen. I'm breaking down earnings estimates picture ahead of what could be a tough quarter. Then, earlier today, I had a chance to check out Mini Dreamforce at the Javits Center in New York City. I'm sharing my exclusive two-part interview with the co-CEOs of Salesforce from the big event. Charitable Trust owns it. I think that's bottom. And the Fed has set its sights on housing inflation. I'm breaking down what needs to happen to help bring it down. So stay with Kramer.
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? With almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for our students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and our proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. This week has been a heck of a lot better than it could have been. Fed Chief Jay Powell spent the last two days testifying on the Hill, total minefield, and we've made our way through that without getting blown up. But as much as I welcome any respite from the horrific action we've gotten used to over the last six odd months, I just can't feel as good as I would like about this market. I would love to come out here and tell you that you can buy stocks that the market has bottomed. But it's simply not yet true for many equities. Putting aside every other negative, there's one big reason why it is so hard to call the bottom in the market yet. Many of the earnings estimates for individual companies are still too high. The numbers for both the current quarter and the rest of the year haven't come down enough, and we're about to enter a second quarter earnings season that something could be hell on wheels. We know the Fed's slamming the brakes on the economy in order to tamp down on inflation, and while that might not send us into a true recession, it definitely means we're headed for some kind of slowdown. It's orchestrated. Yet right now, when you look at the analyst consensus earnings estimates for the stocks, the S&P 500, they're predicting 8% growth, followed by 11% next year. You know what? I find that hard to believe. 8% to 11% earnings growth is basically what you'd expect in an average year. To put that in perspective, over the last two decades, the average earnings growth for the S&P 500 was 11%. Right now, the estimates are saying the next 18 months will be not too good, but not too bad either. To me, that sounds kind of a little bit out of whack with reality. Somehow we hear a constant chatter about how the economy is headed for an inevitable recession, yet the earnings estimates for the S&P 500 suggest we're looking at a more or less okay year in 2022, decent year in 2023. Again, I personally don't think a recession is inevitable, but I'm convinced 2022 will be a decidedly below average year, and that means the earnings estimates for the vast bulk of stocks in the S&P 500 are way too high. So why does it matter that the estimates are too high? Because markets don't like the bottom until all the bad news is baked into stock prices. Estimate cuts are a big negative. We can't find a floor until the analysts adjust those numbers to fit the new reality. 
until that happens, we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I believe it is going to drop. You know that I'm in constant touch with CEOs. I pay obsessive attention to the parade of earnings reports and conference calls from major companies, along with many not-so-major companies. From sifting through all the information, I can already tell you there was a real downturn that began in late March or early April for many companies. You better believe that downturn is going to show up in the second quarter earnings reports once the reporting period starts in a few weeks. And look, it's not like the first quarter was all that great. The average company the S&P 500 put up just 4% earnings growth in the first three months of the year. The analysts are expecting 6% growth in the second quarter, followed by 14% growth in the third quarter and 7% growth in the fourth quarter. It's kind of psychotic. If you believe these forecasts, businesses should be getting much, much better over the summer when everything we know says, well, perhaps the opposite has happened. The second quarter ends in a week. Even if China reopens its economy and Ukraine negotiates a peace deal with Russia tomorrow, those numbers are going to be unattractive. Even as I remain steadfast that one, if not both of those exogenous events will happen, I'm starting to think that a Ukraine truce is for real. More specifically, the aggregate earnings estimates simply don't fit with what we've heard from individual companies over the last couple of months. Take retail. A little over a month ago, Walmart and Target both slashed their earnings guidance and a hideous one-two punch crushed the averages. While Walmart's bad numbers came as a surprise, Target's were truly hideous. They slashed the forecast they'd only given less than three months before. And CEO Brian Cornell, who was totally solid, said apparel, home, hard lines all saw a rapid slowdown year-over-year sales trends beginning in March. Very jarring. He's got to get lot, rid of a lot of inventory on the hop. Then there's Snap, the Baron of Snapchat. After giving an okay forecast in late April, they turned around and slashed those numbers a month later. Snap blamed a weaker macroeconomic environment and also inflation, which is kind of nuts considering this is a social media company. Not like they have tons of raw cost exposure like aluminum or steel. Don't forget about longtime Kramer fave Cisco, which also cut its full-year forecast last month. We spoke to CEO Chuck Robbins when he went out to San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and he said the Chinese lockdowns are killing them. While that's a temporary problem, it's still with us right now. Anyone with significant supply chain exposure to China is being crushed. Same goes for NVIDIA, another company you know I like very much. Their numbers look very similar to Cisco. I think that any company that depends on China for components or customers is looking at an ugly second quarter. Hey, by the way, that could include Apple. That said, I believe that NVIDIA stock is now taking into account all but a horrendous estimate cut that I am not expecting. Yet the analysts expect the S&P 500 in the aggregate to earn $55.10 per share in the second quarter. That's 75 cents higher than what they were expecting at the beginning of the year. Again, unhinged. Do you really think the outlook for the second quarter has gotten better over the last six months? Let me give you another example. Last week, we spoke to Joth Rickey, the CEO of Dutch Bros, the hypercaffeinated cap. Uh, coffee chain that I like so much. As much as I think the concept is terrific, there's no denying that their situation got a lot worse over the past couple of months. The cadence. Ricky told us that they saw real softness in April, and while May was a bit better, it's still well below where they, what they want to see. In particular, their afternoon business has taken a big hit. Those tend to be more discretionary purchases. Dutch Bros is also having some labor issues. They can't find enough people to fuel their aggressive expansion plans, and the, the, the good ones job hop raising wages beyond what a growth business can afford when it doesn't have billions in the till. I think Dutch Bros has a great long-term story, and Josh Rickey is a straight shooter. But that conversation made me feel like estimates could go further lower soon. It's bad news for the stock and anything else like it. Finally, now this is a difficult one. It's kind of like the home builders. Just this morning, we got results from Darden. That's the parent company of Olive Garden, Capital Grill, and Longhorn Steakhouse. They actually had a good quarter, much better than I was looking for. So good 
that you just wanted to salivate over buying the stock. But their full-year earnings forecast was substantially weaker than expected. Being hit by raw cost inflation, they're eating those costs because they don't want to drive away their customers. I'm betting you'll see a bunch of estimate cuts for Darden tomorrow morning. Uh, Darden stock should have been up. If you just look at the earnings, it could have been much higher. Uh, but it finished just up 48 cents because of the forecast cuts. It's not unlike what happened with the home builders, uh, with, with Lenar and with KB. You know, you, you had these really great quarters, but they are saying things are getting weaker. But people like them because they think the estimate cuts are finally done. I'm not sure. Bottom line. Over the next few weeks, but before earnings seasons get rolling, I expect the analysts to hit us with some preemptive estimate cuts, while more companies hit us with negative pre-announcements. It's going to be bad for the averages. But once the sell-off hits and we get over the estimate cuts for 2022 and 23, that's it. That's when we will have not a tradable bottom like this one, but an investable one, one worth owning. Edamira in Virginia. Edamira. Hi, how are you? I am good. How are you, Edamira? I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good today. Um, I had some questions about um, Walmart stocks. Okay. And... Um, and, and retail, um, stores like that, um, and I, I know that we're supposed to, um, buy low and sell high. Absolutely. Uh, and so is, is, um, some, some store like Walmart, um, uh, uh, those stocks, are they good to... Great question. Great question. Here's the way way I explain it. Now, my travel trust sold a huge amount of Walmart when it's much higher, but we kept on some. Why? Because we felt that there was just something to like about, uh, and we were wrong. The stock got completely crushed. But down here at 19 times earnings with a great balance sheet and a chance for a bounce, I am in favor of Walmart, not against it. And that matters tremendously. There are a bunch of stocks like Walmart that I think are overdone on the downside and can be bought because of forecast cuts. Let's go to Tom in Connecticut. Tom. Hello, Jim. A big booyah from Danbury, Connecticut. Thank you, you Tom. Right back at you. What's going on? Uh, club member, multi-time caller. Oh, uh, I want to thank you. you and Jeff for all you guys do. Oh, and and your yeah, Jeff Marks does such a great job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yep. Enjoy your morning meetings. Thank well, you. 1020. Jim. All right. We um, want to talk about a company that uh, was on your show a while back. You mentioned them this morning on the uh, email to club members. Right. And um, they uh, were downgraded by Morgan Stanley today from a buy to hold. They got a PE of nine. Um, they, they fit the mold of a company that makes things, do stuff, they pay a dividend. I'd like to know if you think we keep the tractors running or park them in the barn on Agco. Agco, I mean, what happened here at Agco, Tom, is that corn has fallen at moment, fallen just a great deal, okay? And then, and also, by the way, soy has fallen. Now, wheat has fallen. Now, we don't talk about all these commodities coming unglued. But that's what's driving Agco lower. I, I, I think that Agco seems like a terrific situation. We're going to have to have them back on because that stock is just getting, just getting crushed here. And I'm not so sure that's the right thing that should happen. All right now, over the next few weeks, I do expect analysts to hit us with some preemptive estimate cuts while more companies hit us with negative pre-announcements. They'll be bad for the averages. But once the sell-off hits and the stocks are down a great deal, well, guess what? I think we have an investable bottom. Now much more mad money ahead including my two-part exclusive with the co-CEOs of Salesforce. Talk about an investment bottom. Then there's one tough pill to swallow for companies that I could, I think could help beat inflation. I'll reveal it. 
and Oyer calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have we seen a sustainable bottom in the highest quality cloud software stocks? In the past few weeks, we've gotten earnings from the cloud cohort, and there is a clear bifurcation here. The truly bad ones saw their stocks collapse still further after they reported truly bad numbers. But there were plenty of good ones that reported good numbers and actually saw their stocks bounce. Because unlike so many other companies, they don't need their earnings estimates to be cut. Take Salesforce.com, the customer relations management software Kingpin. Now, they reported a strong quarter. And while the guidance was, ah, some thought was mixed, I thought it was okay, management did a good job of explaining that most of the shortfalls were related to currency fluctuations, particularly the yen. Easy to asterisk that kind of thing. As a result, the stock jumped from 160 to 188 over the course of two days. And while it's pulled back to 173 since then, it hasn't revisited its previous level of 154 in late May. That is a good sign of a bottom. Now, earlier today, we got a chance to check in with Mark Benioff, the co-founder, chairman, CEO of Salesforce. He's actually the co-CEO now with Brett Taylor, who also came with us in a customer event that was hosted right here in New York City. Take a look. Well, Brett and Mark, to be with each other in person, it's amazing. It is amazing. Isn't the energy in here just no, incredible? It, and I, I want to talk about that. I think that we have a national, if not international, depression of thought. But I believe business, which you taught me, is the greatest force for social change, can also be the greatest force for constructive change. When you get together, things happen. Well, you're right. People are meeting each other. They're able to collaborate. They're able to help each other improve. That's a huge part of what's going on here. And, Brett, you both have traveled around the world, and you know the glue. Uh, you also get to hear over and over again that businesses are cutting back. But I saw your last quarter, and it seems like they may be cutting back on some things, but they don't seem to be cutting back at all on technology. They seem to be accelerating their spend on tech. Well, look, the secular trend in the pandemic of just technology exploding, that's continued. You know, And whether you're using it to transform your customer experience, build a e-commerce storefront, build a digital customer service experience, or you're using it to drive productivity and cost savings, technology is the answer. And we've seen every company through the pandemic, if you didn't have a digital business, you didn't have a business, and now they're continuing those investments. And you're seeing it to drive top line growth, you're seeing it to drive bottom line growth, and that's what drove our Q4, Q1 results. All right, now, Mark, we haven't seen this kind of inflation since 1969. I've been waiting for 
your company, for all tech, to kick in and start getting costs lower, which is historically what tech has done. Why hasn't it happened? Well, you're right. This is the role of technology. It should be addressing the labor shortage. Right. It should be addressing the productivity. That's the biggest problem facing issues. our country. Absolutely. So this is what technology is going to do. And we, we see that every single day because we see our customers using our technology to do maybe something simple like case deflection, which is instead of having to answer a customer service question with a, sa a sales rep or a customer service rep they can't even hire, they're able to use technology to do that. And in the case of making a sale or answering an issue around a marketing activity, this is where technology is going to come in and start to help these customers be much more productive. And the labor shortage isn't going to stop them. Now, we have lived through 2008 together. This is not like that, correct, in terms of laying off key people in order to be able to make the payroll? Nothing like that. We haven't seen that yet, and who knows what's going to come. But yeah, we know that there's things out there. You just mentioned one, labor. You, I think you mentioned inflation. You know, we saw what's happening in the stock market. You saw what's happening in foreign exchange. Uh, there's obviously all kinds of different things that are out there. But the one thing that is tr more true than ever is that our customers who are here today, here we are in Javits Center, they, they want to understand what's happening with these products so they can improve their companies. All right, now, Brent, uh, when I hear where you're hiring people, where you're putting people, I saw that you put two top executives in Atlanta. Atlanta, well, you've got the biggest tower in San Francisco. You guys are maybe the most work-from-home outfit I know. We, do, we never talk about the impact, the social impact, the economic impact of work-from-home. What do you see it as? Well, look, Silicon Valley used to be a place. Silicon Valley is now in the cloud. You can start companies from anywhere. You can hire from anywhere. You know, our new CIOs from Atlanta, as you said, our I new head of investor relations. We didn't put a job requisition out asking, we need a CIO in Atlanta. We just said, we want the best CIO we can find. And he happened to be in Atlanta, a guy named Juan Perez, used to be the CIO and chief yeah. engineering officer of UPS, an incredible individual. And you know, if not for the insight we got in this pandemic to transform ourselves running on our digital headquarters of Slack instead of our physical headquarters in San Francisco, we might not have found him. And I think the nine to five work week is dead. The Monday through Friday work week is dead. The world of flexible work is here. And I think the companies that embrace it will find better talent will have happier workforces and they'll succeed. Well, it sounds like that the idea that everyone has to come from, live from Silicon Valley, Stanford is over. It is. And you know, it was funny you had to make the pilgrimage to Menlo Park to really start a company in the first place, right? It's a little I did it. I hated road. It. I hated it. Really? And, you know, at the end of the day, there's talent everywhere. And, you know, I think we'll look back at this pandemic and said, this was the era where entrepreneurialism really exploded around the globe. And I think it'll be a great thing for society. Wow, that would be fabulous. We're definitely surprised. Atlanta's a great example, right, where we have all these amazing new executives in Atlanta. Well, Chuck Bob is always tough. You know, we, everyone wants to go there. They just realize that it's a hub. Another hub, by the way, could be in Ohio. Well, we mayors know. and governors around the country, they're competing for talent right. now. And we're going to go where the best talent is. And I think for innovative mayors, innovative governors that are making it a great place to live, a great place to work, those states and, and cities are going to benefit. And great universities and great customers. And then that's when all of a sudden you say, oh, OK, you have another opportunity here to grow. It's better. Now, speaking of places where there are great entrepreneurs and great uh, code writers and a country that I so fear for, Ukraine. Now, you just came back from, da from Davos. Any hope in Ukraine that it will not end in some sort of just uh, 
let's just say, a, a shocking, terrible demise of a democracy? Well, I think this is one of the things that's on the world's mind. We want peace in the world, and our businesses want peace so that we can have productivity, but also to understand that we have stability and we know where we're going forward. And when we have things that are going on, like we see uh, in the Ukraine right now, it doesn't give us a lot of uh, confidence exactly no. in where things are going. So that's why we want that resolved so that we can move forward. And it's such a horrible and sad situation. We'll be back in a minute with Mark Benioff, Red Taylor, co-CEOs of Salesforce. Coming up, may the force stay with you. Mark Benioff sticks with Kramer next. You just saw our interview with the co-CEOs of Salesforce, Mark Benioff and Brett Taylor. And because the beleaguered cloud software space is so important to the market, I wanted to give them more time. So let's get right back to it. Speaking of confidence, your quarter, it was remarkable. Stock went up to 188 and comes down. We have some sort of gloom that, to me, is negating some of the great numbers that I've seen. That quarter was incredible. Sales cloud accelerating. Uh, without a doubt, to me, if it weren't for Japan, they, the numbers would have been extraordinary. But people don't understand. Do you think it's a lack of understanding about the dollar? Do you think it's just a belief that these cloud and software stocks just aren't worth nearly as much as we thought? What is keeping the lid on a company in the Dow that had one of the best quarters that I've ever seen? Well, I think one thing you mentioned, we had a great quarter, but the dollar had an even better quarter. Right. <laughs> and everywhere you go in the world, you basically say you're a dollar holder, you can buy a lot more. I was just in Europe, I was just in Japan, I was just in Australia, um, Singapore, anywhere you go the dollar is worth a lot more. Of course, that's going to mean that for companies who are rolling revenue up in the dollar, you're going to have less revenue because you're rolling up currencies that are worth less. doesn't mean that your businesses are not doing well internationally. Like Japan is one of our greatest, highest performing, if not the highest performing unit in the company. I think we're now the second largest software company in Japan or soon to be the second largest software company. But of course, with the yen, I think it's about a third of its value, or two-thirds of its value, it's lost a third of its value since March 1st. Yeah, it's just... That's amazing. It's just not tolerable. And that's, something that, that we, and, and that's not something we can understand. So I think that we have to be completely transparent on what's happening so our investors can understand how well our company is really doing. All right, well, let's, Brett, I want to go about speaking of transparency and something that doesn't get enough credit. Look, I thought MuleSoft was good. I know it's only up 9%. Only up 9 Everybody else wishes they could be it. I think Tableau is crushing. But the one that no one is talking about is Slack. I saw a piece, for instance, in some tech magazine that says that Slack could take on LinkedIn. It has a better product. I think that the Slack numbers since they've come in and with the CEO still there are just amazing. Who is going to champion Slack to Wall Street? Well, look, <laughs> Slack is amazing. Yesterday in Javits, Slack released a bunch of new capabilities. You can now do video chat in Slack. You can now do screen sharing in Slack, drawing. When you think about this new area of flexible work, it all runs on Slack. Slack is your digital headquarters. As you said, exceeded our revenue expectations every quarter since we've owned it. It is the most relevant conversation. I was just in Europe last week, talked to 15, 20 different CEOs. You know what they wanted to talk about? Slack. 
because they're all trying to figure so out what to do with their workforce. Outlook? Why are we on Outlook? What does Outlook give me? Well, well, you have to realize, like, take a customer yesterday. We had this conference here in this building for Slack called Frontiers. IBM is here. Great customer at Salesforce. Arvind, a great CEO. Great. Yes. Yeah. And great Slack customer. And now they've put the things together and they say, well, we're feeding Salesforce now into Slack and now we can create auto deal desks so we can work together. Well, will it this challenge, is our dream. Will it challenge Outlook. This is our dream. Will it challenge Outlook. It's I, I so much bigger than the, anything that you've ever thought of like that because it's a collaboration. You wouldn't First even give all, me that soundbite. You refuse hey, to give me the soundbite. We're bites. even, think about this, we're even in a new world of work. It's a flexible work environment. We have people working at home. We right. have people in the office. We have people at this trade show. We have people all over the world. They are on Slack. They're on Salesforce. It has to be able to work everywhere. We have to pull the information together. That's also why we bought Tableau. At that right. point, we have to go from that data to decisions. Tableau's that's fabulous. also why we bought MuleSoft, because we have to integrate it all together. And that's why our customer 360 platform is so much better than it was just a couple of years ago, because we've been able to extend it with these critical technologies. This is a powerful moment for our customers to bring it all together. And that's why I'm excited we can show it to them in person okay. right here. Um, okay, I'm gonna say no comment, no comment, which gives you a chance to be able to say, Jim, I repeat what you said. But I'm looking at the pages in your book about why you didn't buy Twitter. And there were many reasons of you which- You tore them out though. Yeah, I did because I want to be, able, to be able to say, I read this book and it talked about how much Mark liked Twitter. You are the chairperson really of Twitter. really not that happy that you ripped my book apart. Well, no, I needed <laughs> these pages in front of me to be able to prove to him that I read it. Uh, why let this thing go to the highest bidder? Is that the way it should be? Because you're a pure capitalist. Because I got to tell you, Mark's view of Twitter is better than anyone's. Well, look, not a lot I can say because of the transaction going on. So can't speak much beyond the proxy statements. But I'll tell you, I think Twitter is more relevant now than it's ever been. You can see the world events taking place on it, culture being defined on it, music. I just watched the NBA Finals where my Warriors won, and NBA Twitter is amazing. So I'm just incredibly grateful to be a part of the service, and uh, I'm excited about closing the transaction. Are you able transaction. to work at all with Salesforce? Because you are a great, whatever you do, you're dedicated. I don't know how you can possibly not serve the Twitter shareholders because of Salesforce, but not serve the Salesforce shareholders. Well, I've actually been on the Twitter board for six years and, you know, my background's in consumer technology and I'm actually grateful to be a part of it because if you talk to all of our customers here at this event, World Tour, every single one of them is impacted by these technologies. Right. Our new customer data platform is, you know, impacting every consumer company. These social media companies are Im impacting how they acquire customers, yes. how they do customer service. So I'm actually grateful to be a part of both companies and it's actually helping me with all of our Salesforce well, customers. Right. Yeah. We, we actually have, lucky we have them as our co-CEO. Well, Fantastic. I was going to ask you, but I'm going to ask you. Uh, Dreamforce, uh, where, when, what do we do? Dreamforce is happening in September. The biggest, best Dreamforce you've ever seen. Well, last year, Jim, we only had a thousand people because we didn't know if we could do it with this pandemic right. going on. It's usually a couple hundred thousand people. We're putting, we're turning the knob up to 11 this year. And All 200,000 people coming. It is going to be on fire. And historically, Everyone a lot of business has been done. This is not just idle. A lot That's of business right. you well, win. Just like this is a small version of it today. And we're going to have a big version of it in September. We want everyone to come back to San Francisco, the greatest city on earth, and see the most amazing tech show, which is Dreamforce. Well, I have to admit, it's my favorite. I want to thank Brett Taylor and Mark Benioff, co-CEOs of Salesforce. Gentlemen, I can shake your hand because we've been PCR'd <laughs> and because it's a new era. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you.
Just chill out. Is this Chill Master J? The Chill Man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming up when Mad Money returns. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. It's time and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski down the lightning round. Let's start with Kevin in Georgia. Kevin! Booyah, Professor Kramer. Booyah. Long time fan, first time, first time caller. My Thank interest you. is in the 5G play and that's Nokia. Symbol uh, NOK. I am hearing nothing but positives of late for the last four weeks about Nokia and all that's happened is the stock goes down. I don't care. I think it's right to buy. There's just too much good news here. Randy in West Virginia. Randy! Hello, Jim. Booyah to all the coal miners out there watching your show. I like that. I agree with you. Working hard. What's up? I'd like to know about ARLP. Well, it's one of the, the legitimate coal mining companies, and we're obviously, uh, I for about a word, stuck with coal in Europe. I think coal is a decent price. I think they can make, I, I think the company's decent price, and I think they can make that yield. Uh, let's go to James in Louisiana. James. Hey, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. I want to ask about SoFi Technologies. All right. Uh, you know, SoFi is very hard to reconcile because it's got great management. Um, it used to trade much, much higher. But at $5, if, I, I think Anthony Noto can turn this thing around and make it have money, uh, make it a profit, a profitable company. I think we'll do it. So I'm not going to say sell the company here. Let's go to Craig in New Jersey. Craig. Hi, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing good. Well, good, Craig. How about you? Not bad, thanks. Not bad. Uh, calling about a stock that has a 31 PE, uh, 5% dividend. Uh, just calling to see if uh, Iron Mountain is uh, safe and bold. You know what? People have tried to get me to shy away from Iron Mountain. I've been behind it because I like that uh, that dividend, which I believe is safe. I think you're okay in it. Let's go to Aaron in Tennessee. Aaron. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Booyah. First-time caller, long-time listener. Excellent. I, I appreciate what you're doing for people, especially in times like this. Sure My trying. for you is, what is your opinion on the next three to five years on Tattooed Chef? Ticker symbol That's TTC. a very hard call. It doesn't make money, and I'm not currently recommending stocks that don't make money. Now, people would say, Jim, i got to be critical of you because you recommended SoFi. What I'm saying is SoFi, I don't, is they don't make money. I don't think it's going to go much lower. Now, we're going to Peggy in Pennsylvania. Peggy. Hi, Jim. Hey, Love Peggy. the show. Been Thank watching you. it since March of 2005. Love your accent. Uh, nice. I feel at home. What's up? I'm calling about a fertilizer stock that is down 63% since ag peaked in the middle of April. Uh, red candles on all the, all the ag charts, but this one's really bad. Um, it also sells input to the oil and gas industry for drilling and fracturing operations. So should I buy, sell, or hold? My intrepid potash, symbol IPI. I am very worried about that industry because I see the prices of corn and wheat be going down and soy. No one talks about the stuff that's good that's happening inflation. There's obviously some inflation that we have to get rid of, but not in commodities. They have all come down. Let's go to Anthony in my home state of New Jersey. Anthony! Jimmy, what are you thinking of CRISPR these days? That's uh, a good I didn't action. like you know, you the, the read yesterday was so-so. It was so-so. And people didn't like it yesterday. It's up five. Now, I want to say longer term that this is one of the few companies that I have felt uh, represents the real technology of the future. This is you know, more of a Kathy Wood, Jim Cramer, not usually confused with each other. So I'm not going to bet against anyone who wants to be part of CRISPR technology because it could be great. Now we go to John in California. John. 
Salutations from Fresno, California. Oh, I love Fresno. My doctor, one of my doctors just moved there. What's going on? Uh, I've owned Berkshire Hathaway for 30 years. Should I continue to hold? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, The assets are great. I know the chart's not great, but the assets are terrific. How about Mike in California? Mike, Mike, Mike. Oh, no, that could be the end. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, America's itching for relief from rising prices. But the consumer goods cohort won't scratch. Where does that leave Jay Powell? Find out next. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. If we want to beat inflation, we actually need companies to hurt their own gross margins. But these are for-profit enterprises, not charities. They're not going to do that. The most visible issue is housing. We have an awful combination of high rents and high housing prices, fueled by the rise of remote work and a demographic bonanza, which are producing surprisingly good earnings for the homebuilders. Both Lenar on Tuesday and then KB Homes last night told you that housing prices aren't coming down versus two years ago. They're actually up 20% over that period. Now, that's great for the stocks, but that's not something the Federal Reserve can tolerate in their war against inflation. Let's go further. Almost everything that goes into a home has now gone down in price year over year. Commodity prices have been smashed, although almost no one talks about that. The problem is the home builders aren't passing along any of those raw cost savings to the customers. Their gross margins continue to go higher because there's a housing shortage. That's also untenable for the Fed. So what happens? Well, the Federal Reserve should step in, and they're going to. They raise interest rates because that's the only real way to stop housing inflation. Right now, renting is so expensive that buying a home is basically it's a no-brainer, even at these prices, if you've got the cash for down payment. But as mortgage rates go higher, that changes the calculus and brings down the price of residential real estate. Given that raw costs are already down, more rate hikes will force the homebuilders to cut their prices to levels where we no longer have to worry about housing inflation, or at least that's the theory. Now, we know there's a lot of collateral damage from aggressive rate hikes, but it's not like the Fed has any other weapons in its arsenal that could do the job. Now, there are companies that haven't been able to make enough money to sell into home builders, and the best of them is Whirlpool. There's been tremendous demand for their appliances, but they haven't been able to capitalize on that demand because of the semiconductor shortage and, of course, higher raw costs. That's changing, though. All of the raw cost materials are actually coming down at the same time the Whirlpool's thinking about selling off its European business, something that would raise a ton of cash for a company that already has a 4.3% dividend yield and a very good earnings outlook because the home builders will keep making product no matter what. But because the home builder stocks are going to take a hit as the Fed tightens, it's tough to recommend Whirlpool. It will be treated as guilt by association, even though it's innocent. But there is a lot of earnings power here. Of course, it's not just housing. Fed Chief Jay Powell also needs to break the cycle of endless price increases by the consumer packaged goods companies like Clorox or Procter & Gamble. Now, we've been buying Procter for the charitable trust precisely because there's no trade down in its product categories and its brands are ubiquitous. Plus, Procter's raw costs are finally coming down, in some cases dramatically. 
And neither you nor I expect to see them to pass on those savings to, to us, right? Well, what does that mean? It means better earnings. So how can the Fed contain this inflation? Again, no good answer. Powell can only hit the brakes in the economy to cause layoffs, making people say feel insecure about their jobs and thus less willing to spend money on a, a Gillette razor rather than a cheap knockoff. In the end, Proctor may have to cut prices in order to protect its market share. That's what the Fed has to hope. I point all of this out because Powell spent the last two days telling Congress how inflation is too hot. But he didn't describe what it's like in the real world. When you actually look at these examples, the inflation picture is far more intractable than we might want to believe. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.